Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, media podders. Well, we did it. They said it couldn't be done, but here we are, 100 episodes later, we are still the home of independent media news and analysis. You are welcome. Uh, And thank you, everybody who got in touch about our plans for a celebration next week. It turns out that the end of July is a terrible time for people. Who knew? So uh, we've made the decision to postpone our festivities until after the summer break. We'll be announcing a new date and other exciting news very soon. Until then, here is episode 100 in all its glory. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, what do we make of the new culture secretary? Who will win the copyright war between internet giants and the EU? Eddie Mayer joins LBC. All of that, plus highlights from the programme at this year's Edinburgh TV Festival and lowlights from the list of the BBC's top earners. Plus, in the media quiz, we guess people, places and things. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today in a room that does have some construction going on outside, so apologies if you hear any background noise this week, is the Secretary of Audio UK, of which more later, Trevor Dan, and Toby Oradon, co-founder and editor of the lifestyle platform Black Ballad. Uh, Toby, first of all, what's a lifestyle platform? And secondly, what's Black Ballad? Black Ballad was started by myself and my co-founder in 2014 with the aim to help black women in Britain live their best lives. As we know, media is very undiverse. Um, So we create content, events, and we give our uh, subscribers and members discounts to black-owned businesses. And people who are members pay an annual or monthly fee to have access to all those benefits. And a lot of people who weren't interested in the first bit, suddenly their ears pricked up when you said that second bit, because that is uh, a bold model, isn't it, when you're building a brand to charge people to be part of it? Yeah, I mean, um, when you have such a specific audience, um, you make money by advertising, and we all know that advertisers love numbers, and I'm not going to have those numbers. So we thought it would be a more stable route to ask our members to pay. Um, And they aren't getting this content anywhere else, really. I mean, I don't know where anyone else is producing content for black women, first and foremost, in an authentic manner. Um, So we did a crowdfunding in 2016 to launch our membership programme, and we raised £11,000 in six weeks. Brilliant. But I've been on your website, and I can read your editorial leaders. So what do you get as a member that you don't get? Okay, so if you're not a paying member, you get three free articles a month by just putting in your um, email address. And if you're a member, there's two stages. There's a standard and a premium stage. If you're standard, as I said, you get access to all content, discounts to the events, and discounts to black-owned brands that we work with. And if you're a premium member, you get all of that, but access to our private Slack group. 
There we go. Niche freemium audiences in practice happening before our very eyes. Good work. Okay. Now, you were named as well as one of Forbes magazine's 30 under 30 this year. Yes. Could you, apart from all being under 30, what else would you say you guys all had in common? Did you meet for a glam photo shoot somewhere? <laughs> no, we didn't. We went to the uh, launch party for it. And I think the people that I spoke to, besides being under 30, I think it's just people, um, young people who are really tired with the uh, structures in society, um, not giving people equal opportunities. I think it's just people who want to make a change um, to make sure we have different people, different voices from different backgrounds in different areas of life making decisions. Well, talking of making a change, uh, Trevor, Dan. Here's a tired old git who <laughs> needs to be kicked down into touch. Uh, what I was going to say is that last time we spoke, you were secretary of the Radio Independence Group. You are now. You've magically transformed. I'm, I've transmuted into the secretary of Audio UK. The secretary of Audio UK. What does that rebrand actually mean? Well, we decided that the trouble with RIG was not just the acronym didn't sound very pleasant but radio independence suggested that we were defining our sector by what the BBC thought of us as and of course the BBC is the biggest player in uh, our uh, business but we have members who now work for Spotify and Audible and Red Bull and even NASA making audio content and we thought it's about time we stopped saying we are the radio independence group and we started calling ourselves something a bit bigger and grander that in, um, that, that would welcome in people who make audio in the very broadest sense. So Audio UK. And so that means if you're me, or at least if you were me kind of 10 years ago, if you're an independent backroom podcaster type fellow, do you have a place in audio? Should, should I be a member? You, well, you should, makes you, a show you should undoubtedly be. And uh, let, I, I can uh, reveal that um, the, the man who runs this very podcast, Mr. Matt Hill, has now joined Audio UK, but was never a, a member of the Radio Independence Group. Well, and that seems to us to be a really good move because we want to be able to talk to not just the BBC, but to all industries and, of course, to government about... Um, the health of this sector. And one of the interesting things we're working on at the moment, you probably know about this contestable fund that is being developed by the government. Well, we've helped to persuade them that there's going to be an audio component of this now. So up to three million quid is going to be available over three years for independent production companies. In other words, production companies who aren't the BBC or another broadcaster. Um, to make programmes for commercial radio and other commercial interests. Well, that's Audio UK as we are now in action, and that's why everybody in your world should be joining. Okay, makes sense. I guess as well, in a way, it's kind of like UKIP, isn't it? In the sense that you had... It is not like UKIP. <laughs> I dare you. In the sense <laughs> that you had a, a focus to campaign on to begin with, which was more shows made by independent companies at the BBC, and that's been achieved. You've done what UKIP failed to do and you've rebranded and said we've achieved our first goal. Well, we, we've gone a long way to, to achieving that. I mean, I, th I think, though, in the long run, most of us would think that the BBC is still making too many of its programmes in-house, that the, they say that they want the best ideas regardless of source. But then they say, well, actually, no, we've got to have so much from our nations and our regions and you can't access our news programming and so on and so on. And so on. There's a lot of things that we can't go for. 
And there's a lot of, of hours that we think should be opened up increasingly to the independent sector. So we must keep bashing on about that. But we also think we should be going out globally in a kind of Liam Fox way and saying, hey, British audio manufacturers, uh, producers, you know, are the best in the business. Well, whilst we're talking about illustrious figures from the government, let's discuss our exciting new culture secretary uh, sharp intake of breath uh, because uh, whilst the media was understandably focused on uh, Boris Johnson and David Davis resigning and Jeremy Hunt uh, being moved up to foreign secretary and uh, Matt Hancock becoming health secretary that meant of course media fans that there's a new culture secretary it is Jeremy Wright MP me neither he was the Attorney General up until two days ago. He now takes on the digital culture, media and sport portfolio, which in my head I am saying like David Tennant in W1A as well. Uh, Toby, he's the man who's got a background in regulating the internet. And what else? I think he's not used Twitter in three, is it three years? Um, I looked on his Facebook page and I saw like under a thousand likes. So he seems digitally illiterate. I mean, I do wonder how he's going to handle like things like GDPR, which I absolutely hate dealing with. Um, how will that affect small businesses and how will he regulate big businesses that get around that? It's also the optics of the government. They don't really care about digital and tech, especially as a young person who's been able to build a digital platform because of tech. It just feels that it's kind of like an industry that doesn't matter to the government, even though it helps other countries be global power players. Um, and I think it sends the wrong message that we don't value people who are in this industry. It's almost as if his appointment was made in a hurry by a Prime Minister with other yeah. things to think about. <laughs> I can't imagine that that would be the case, uh, Ollie. of course. He is the guy who was involved in that story about banning books for prisoners. Do you remember that? A few I years do. ago, that's good. classic phone-in subject, and he oh. he he was uh, part of that. I think we, whether he's Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong, we're going to have to give him a chance, aren't we? I mean, he's going to have to read his way into the job. It wouldn't have been a job on the morning he got it that he had any idea he was going to have. Um, and there's a lot of. It's a former criminal barrister, so in terms of doing the reading, we can at least presume he's qualified. He's not. He's not you a lifetime so. politician, is he? That's going to just completely blag it. You'd hope he is now going to swat up at least. Are you claiming that uh, lawyers aren't capable of being career politicians? <laughs> <laughs> I forward you, Tony Blair. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let's give the guy a chance. Uh, I shall personally miss Matt Hancock actually because I think he was uh, he was good news for the digital world yeah. um, this guy's not even on Twitter so he's going to have a lot of catching up to do. Toby what industry issues would you put at the top of his to-do list what should he be looking at? GDPR um, of course is what everybody's talking about um, I think also how we invest in small tech and digital businesses I think we need more of them because they make our industry more diverse and I would like people to kind of invest in that and see the noises I hear from government are all about small funds for startups and encouraging diversity are you saying that in reality on the ground that isn't that easy to tap into Yes, and I think like a lot of politicians, I think it's noise. I don't see what actual tangible steps are being made to help small businesses. Well, people that I speak to anyways. Um, so I would like people to kind of stop talking about it and actually do more things. Trevor, what difference do you think Hancock made in his brief tenure? I think he got people talking about his brief. I think because he l likes to be talked about, people were talking about culture and media and those kind of issues uh, we at Audio UK rig as it was always found him and the other people in his department 
easy to talk to because they got it. They understood what we were talking about when we asked them, you know, about could you make a radio component for this contestable fund and so on and so on. I think he was a useful guy in that way. I think Ed Vasey was quite good in that way as well. You know, you you felt that he got it. I don't think this guy's going to invent... Uh, something big like Jeremy Hunt did with his local television. Mm. What a great success that's mm. been, by the way. Um, I, I suspect he won't be in this job for very long. What do you think? I'll, I'll leave that as a question for the audience. <laughs> but I, I would point out that we've had, I think it's one, two, three, four, five that have lasted no longer than 18 months each over the last few years. Sajid Javid was, was in the role for a time, wasn't he? People he was. I remember yeah. that. Um, he right. was quite good at telling stories about how he used to be a DJ when he was at school. <laughs> I've never heard that one. <laughs> he, he, he did a speech uh, where he talked about how um, his mum and dad and the family lived above the shop. And the, what his thing was that when they were down in the shop, he'd get the gramophone out and start playing records and pretending to be Tony Blackburn or or equivalent. Excellent. Well, I mean, uh, Toby, there you are. A culture secretary talks about gramophones. That's ideal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, digital startups. Uh, right. Let's talk about uh, one of the first duties that undoubtedly is going to be uh, in Mr. Wright's in tray, and that is giving Rupert Murdoch the all clear to buy out Sky, paving the way for a possible sale to Disney. But just this morning, the day of recording, uh, rival bidders Comcast have trumped Murdoch with a bid of £26 billion. It's good news for Sky, this, isn't it, Trevor? I mean, having this competition. Comcast must have thought that they were going to get away with paying less than they had in reserve. If if you can turn around an extra what was it, $4 billion or something overnight, then you must have that in your part and you're ready to win this. Mm. I think they might win it, you know. I think they're well, so keen to, to, to get it that they'll, they'll, they will. And you have to question even Rupert Murdoch's pockets at this point, don't you? Because he's already raised his stakes once. He's already Absolutely. said, this is what I'm prepared to pay. Oh, no, okay, I'll pay a bit more. Is he going to pay more again? I think the most interesting... An interesting thing for me, though, Ollie, is in some ways it doesn't really matter. You know, it'll be a bunch of billionaire white blokes running it, mm. whoever they are. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really care, and I'm not sure whether the public, whether the consumer really cares much about this stuff. Well, I think maybe the public care that it's an American company and not a British one. I mean, you're right, it's going to be either Comcast or Disney that end up with Sky, but maybe the public seeing Sky as a British brand do care that it's run by an American company rather than a British one. When I ever heard about Comcast and upping their bid, their bid, I just kind of thought, what's the difference? It's one media conglomerate trying to monopolise the media against someone who has used their media power to shape political views. Both are a bad outcome. It's just too much power for one company, one person to have. But so, by, by it being an American company, which is my point, it's out of the jurisdiction of the UK as to what else they do, what, what their other operations are. Mm. And the concerns about Rupert Murdoch basically were... He runs Fox News in the US, therefore he might be a pernicious influence on Sky News, even though he invented it. Mm. But, you know, with Disney and Comcast, they run all kinds of operations over in the US. Whoever wins it will divest Sky News, surely, won't they? Well, there's this guarantee now, isn't there? They're going to put that Murdoch's going to have to top it up for £100 million, which is kind of funny (laughs) if that's what ends up happening, is that he doesn't get to sell it all to Disney, but then he has to keep subsidising Sky News. Ho, ho. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The government received only five responses from their consultation on the buyout. Do you think actually even people in the government have stopped worrying about Rupert Murdoch's monopoly on the UK media? But I do think we should be worried, though. 
having one person who has these full threat views and uses their views to shape media, I think is dangerous. Maybe they've stopped caring, but I think they should care. There's talk this morning that The Sun have got an interview with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen today as we record this, Mm -hmm. and that that was brokered personally by Rupert, rather as he got the interview for The Times with Trump just after his election. So that'll be an interesting thing to follow today. Okay, good tip. Although, by the time you listen to this, you'll know whether that's the case or not. Uh, uh, Let's talk about now um, a law which threatened to enforce copyright on sites like Wikipedia. It's been rejected by the EU Parliament, despite the support of Sir Paul McCartney and a whole Live Aid's worth of musical talent. Trevor, have you been following what this law was? Not in enough detail, but it was a bad thing. I mean, it's a a very good thing that, that it's not going to happen, because... Uh, the potential was that um, you would have to pay to put in a link. So if you, on your site, Toby, thought that an an article on something else was interesting, you would have to pay for the rights to put that link up, which is just not in the spirit of the internet, is it? But that was obviously, it seemed to me, Toby, something that could be ironed out later, couldn't it, the business of linking in text? Because that does benefit a website to link to them. What it was trying to stop, and that's why it had the backing of these high-profile musicians, was people ripping off music and putting it on their own promotional videos, which they're monetizing without paying for it. Yeah, I think so. But I think it was, for me, what I've read in terms of Google and Facebook not wanting to pay for copyright content. And I think Spain implemented the law and Google left. Um, And I think the problem is that if you do that or, you know, Google and Facebook are not going to want to pay for linking back to copyright content. And that's how people find a lot of their content. And if people can't find their content on those sites, that's less traffic, that's less revenue. So I don't necessarily think it's a great idea, in my personal opinion. But this whole business about, oh, it could end memes, you know, people won't be able to post up a picture of whatever it is, Tom Cruise and a cat, because um, they'll be breaking copyright law and Mm. they'll have to pay for it. That's bollocks, isn't it? People will always rip off a photo and put it on Twitter and they're not going to get sued for doing that. Like, clearly no one's going to sue someone for that. The people that would get sued are people who are monetizing that content, not just making a meme, but actually using it to promote their own wares. And that, that is a problem, isn't it? That You can just rip stuff off a professional photographer, for example, use it to illustrate your article and no one asks anything. Yeah, that is a problem. I think it's more, it's the constraints around it though. Like small businesses like me wouldn't want to chance anything because I know you say, okay, no, you won't be sued, but you just, if you don't have the money to, you know, have lawyers and legal teams, I wouldn't want to chance anything. So everything on your platform then is your content, is it? You don't use images you take from anywhere else. You don't use music you take from anywhere else. With images, we always try to use Flickr, which are free images, or we try to link back, or we have photographers or credit. For me, it would make my job a little harder. One of my favourite stories this week, it's slightly tangential to what you're talking about, is the cease and desist letter that's been sent to Nigel Farage from the rock band Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. Telling him that he's got to stop yeah. calling his podcast okay. Farage Against the Machine. <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> but, which is fantastic. The uh, letter itself from the uh, very fancy New York lawyers is extremely funny. And uh, it's uh, definitely worth having a look at. Okay, I will go off and do that. We'll be back with more news in brief after this. Mouldy walls, random leaks, rotting furniture. No, it's not some new Soho media club, but rather the misdemeanours of Britain's rogue landlords, as seen 
on Channel 5. These manky property crimes would not have reached your television without the services of London production house RunVT. With its 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass light grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth, there's everything you could need to edit your next show. To see what RunVT Studios can do, check out Bad Tenants Rogue Landlords on Channel 5 at 8 o'clock tonight and 5 on demand. And to find out what they can do for you, go to runvt.tv now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now. As usual, the media podcast will be at the Edinburgh TV Festival this August, with all the news, gossip and analysis. For those of you who haven't been before, if you are considering the jaunt to Scotland, we sent producer Rebecca to go and meet the festival's director, Lisa Campbell, and find out who else you could be seeing there this year. All the channel controllers from all the major channels are up there doing their controller sessions, which are really one of the must-see strands. So they outline their commissioning wish lists for the year ahead, so everybody knows the kind of shows to pitch to them. Um, They'll talk about highlights, they'll talk about their strategy. Uh, They'll give some of the bigger picture stuff as well, so how... You know, the media landscape is changing so rapidly, the impact of the SVODs on, on the market. So we get some of the strategic as well as creative stuff from them. Um, there's lots of, um, you know, heads of department, uh, owners of independent production companies. Um, people come to do the speed meetings. So it's a, it's a really sort of unique time to get one on one with with the people with the with the money, really. The masterclasses are one of the, you know, really popular strands. So this year we've got the Derry Girls, you know, fantastic comedy um, on Channel 4. Um, so uh, I think that'll be a really funny session. We're actually going to get them to do a table read. We'll get a bit of sneak information about the next series. Um, we've also got, very excitingly, a very English scandal. Um, so we've got Hugh Grant, one of the biggest names we've had at the festival for a few years. Um, Stephen Frears, the director, and Russell T. Davies, the writer, um, and some f- fantastic producers that are involved in that as well. So that was obviously such a talked about drama and really fascinating story and just beautifully brought to life. So that's going to be a great one. Um, we've got Steve Coogan. Um, so Partridge is going to be back on the BBC after years and years um, so we're going to talk about the longevity of that character and you know comedy generally we've got Joanna Lumley her and her producer Clive Tullow are actually doing a nationwide tour taking questions from the audience and talking about her career so it's quite an interactive session and we have the preview 
And then the real, the centrepiece of the festival is the McTaggart Lecture. That's, a, you know, very much an agenda-setting view of the industry. It's very personal. We give people the platform and really, you know, hand it over to them. It's up to them absolutely to express their opinions. And we've typically had, it's um, fair and somewhat depressing to say, elder statesmen so yes it's been it's been men it's been white middle-aged middle-class and older men and this year for the very first time we have a woman <laughs> not the very first time actually we've had uh, four women before this but you know in 43 years that's not very good so she's also the youngest mctaggart speaker so this is michaela cole um who is behind chewing gum um on channel four she's in her 20s she only graduated from drama school in 2012 and she's just had this phenomenal rise and she's a performer writer she's going to be in a a huge netflix uh, film so she's i think it's one of the biggest film deals that netflix has done she was in charlie brooker's black mirror and then she's going to be talking a lot about on-screen representation so if people go to the tvfestival.com website there's loads more information on the program there are a range of tickets still available for people working in the industry, everyone from freelancers to small indies, you know, to, to the bigger players. So there's a whole range of, of options and prices. There's also the option for members of the public to buy one-off tickets to some of the, you know, the names they might want to see from, from Michaela to the Dairy Girls. And they're available on Eventbrite. But yeah, check out the website and it's all there. Lisa Campbell speaking to producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. Time for some more media news in brief now, and Toby and Trevor are still with me, and the PM presenter Eddie Mayer will join LBC in September after 30 years at the BBC. Trevor, how did LBC manage to pull off this coup? Well, I think there's been some bad coverage of this. You know, The default position is... Eddie Mayer is paid a lot of money by the BBC and was asked to take a pay cut and refused. Well, we now know that that isn't true because he's, he's said and shown the letter that he wrote to the BBC saying, yes, I will take a pay cut. I think this is a really good story. It's a very positive story, although I'll miss him on PM and I think he's a really good broadcaster. Isn't it great that somebody of his age thinks it's time for a new challenge. And that's what this is, I think. I think he genuinely thinks, I've done this programme, PM, for years and years and years. You know, he's he's banged his head on this kind of creative ceiling with that show. You know, you can tell from some of his acerbic comments that he's not always terribly happy about what he's made to, to broadcast. You know, when he calls something... The Andy Swiss desk of sport presented by Andy Swiss. You know that that's not really an, an item that he wants that much, that badly in the show. So I think he's very good with callers, which is something you can't do with PM. Really good with kind of ordinary people, as you've heard him do on IPM. And I think this is a fantastic opportunity for him and really good news for LBC and well done them. So do you think then he's going to be doing a phone-in show? I think he's going to be doing the standard um, drive time show, yeah. which is a lot of callers and some interviews. Okay, so drive time. Is that you letting the cat out of the bag? Do you know that? I don't know that, but uh, I'm prepared to stake a couple of P that that's where they'll put him. Because Ian Dale is still very much on their press releases, including the one about Eddie Mayer coming to LBC. So what do you do with and Ian Dale? And he's welcomed then? it. Well, can't you move him a little later in the evening, perhaps after the Farage moment? 
Okay, so no Clive Ball then? I mean, what do you think they're going to do? What would you do if you were the scheduler and you had Eddie Mayer on your books? uh, That's what I'd do. Okay. Yeah, because you can't move Ferrari. You can't move um, uh, James O'Brien, of course. Very unlikely they'd move Sheila, so I think it's got to be Ian. Well, they could squish everyone's shows down by an hour, couldn't they? Yeah, they could, but then that would cost them a lot of money. But here's my other guess. I think that um, Eddie will dep for Ferrari when he's on leave. So that'll be, you know, kind of 10 weeks of every year. I was thinking that maybe he's going to be the next breakfast host. And that's really what they're doing. could happen, couldn't it? But Um, not yet. uh, Toby, a a lot of LBC's clips, James O'Brien in particular, but Farage as well, go viral, don't they, on Mm -hmm. Facebook and on Twitter. Do you think Eddie Mayer has that capacity? Because he is an amazing broadcaster. He's very much, I would say, an audio broadcaster and not a visual one. I agree it's a great move, but for different reasons. I would like to see how committed the BBC are to putting a person of colour or a woman in a primetime slot. I think there's so much choice out there. LBC is not my first choice. Um, I do agree with you about the challenge for the BBC and PM, because... We don't want another example of them trying to do diversity and getting it wrong, mm. like the, the Simon Mayo, Joe Wiley mm. programme, which is still not working. And it's a big challenge for them, this, because some of the uh, obvious choices are men. And I, oh, that isn't the most obvious choice, Caroline Quinn, because she oh, presents it one not. or two days a week anyway. Yes, but she's so dull. I think she's good. Oh, no. But isn't she the obvious <laughs> choice? I hope not. I really hope not. Uh, no, I, w- I would like Jane Garvey to do it. Yes, she would also be excellent. Um, but I'm sure there are many other choices out there. And uh, it, the obvious person, I think, is Paddy O'Connell, but I just don't think they'll say goodbye to one middle-class white bloke and hello to another. But then actually, as you said, then, then you have the issue of, because again, Paddy O'Connell would be a great replacement, are they actually then making it the wrong choice because they're trying to embrace diversity? I mean, this is the complication the BBC faces mm. every day, isn't it? Every yeah. day. Every minute. It's 20 years ago that I used to run a radio station in London, which was GLR. And we had a lot of women on that station. You know, we had Janice Long doing the breakfast show for a long while. We had Emma Freud doing mid-mornings. And all those years ago, it seemed the most natural thing in the world that you would before very long have an absolutely equal split of men and women we also had you know lots of of people of color of all sorts of shades doing all sorts of programs and BBC London still has a bit of that but I'm disappointed that there isn't more of it in more of that thought process going on in commercial radio. Uh, I think if you want to broadcast, particularly to a city like London, you should just look out the window. That's your audience. I do you look like them? Well, if you e- don't, except, you're doing the wrong except thing. Except BBC London still isn't very popular compared to LBC. So <laughs> you're saying that's the there right may recipe. Be, there may be other reasons for that. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's. Uh, you're drifting us into this subject anyway, so let's go for it. Let's talk about pay at the BBC, the male-female disparity, mm. and all the rest of it. I can't even be asked to recap this story because it's top of everyone's <laughs> minds at the moment. We all know what the top ten is. Uh, what was your reaction, Toby, to this list being published again? Okay, like, I don't see any women. I don't see any people of colour. Like, it's kind of the same old story. It's kind of boring, to be honest. Like, it's it's a really boring story for, you know, a young woman, a young black woman to keep looking at these, you know, lists and just see, you know, men, white men, 
from a certain demographic topping the BBC's playlist. Um, and I don't like the fact that these men keep saying, oh, I'm taking a pay cut. So, you know, I have like, the same sort of pay as a woman presenter. I think that's such a stupid thing to do. Like, why don't you just up women's pay? It devalues our work. I don't think the BBC are making any headway with this. Well, the Director General says we are making headway. It's gone from, what was it, one in five to 40, 60 now in terms of male, female. And give us a chance, come back to us in five years, and then you'll see a 50-50 list. It takes time. You know, the audience loves these presenters. The audience loves John Humphreys and Steve Wright. We're not going to get rid of them overnight. It'll be a slow evolution. But in five years, you're just losing your audience. I mean, they don't have that time. Like, they don't have that time. I'm sorry to say. The audio industry, you know, technology lowering the barriers to entry when it comes to media, all these independent media groups and platforms are providing a service that the BBC are just not. Trevor? What she said. Absolutely right. 100%. You should uh, go and talk to those people at the BBC. I've had a lot of meetings at the BBC. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Completely right. And let's just spare a thought. What a brilliant piece of work the women of the BBC have done by keeping banging away at this. And, you know, this was not an issue until a couple of years ago. And then with Carrie Gracie and and Jane and uh, Michelle Hussain and one or two others uh, poking their heads above the parapet. And, you know, I know what it's like working at the BBC. That's a difficult decision to take. And for women to do that uh, and then to keep prosecuting their argument as powerfully as they have... And to achieve the, it's slow, Toby's right, but there is the momentum there now. And I think they'll get that. I think it's a fantastic achievement. And they've all been really clear that they're not looking for more money personally. They're just looking for equality. And that makes sense. But something that I think comes out of this, which I think is problematic, and I'm curious whether you agree, is that for the general public who don't work in the media, who are interested like we all are about what people get paid, what they see when they look at this list, particularly since this includes radio, big radio names, and often that's because they're either on Radio 2 or they've got telly shows as well, but again, that nuance gets lost. They look at this list, and I think they think that's what radio presenters typically get paid, 400 grand. And you, you're and saying you don't? <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm not sure the public are aware that you can present a three-hour radio show on BBC Local Radio if you're co-producing it as well, that's a whole day's work. And the typical salary is 150 quid. Mm. I don't think that message is getting through. And actually, I think it's got lost. And that's alienating for people. And also, it makes people think that the media is this exclusive club along the lines we've been discussing. I completely agree with that. And, and I was at the BBC in a senior management role when the big inflation happened in uh, produ- uh, presenter salaries. And it was a time when the BBC thought that it was going to hemorrhage all its talent. And the only thing it could do was to just throw money at it. So let's not mention any names here, but people who changed networks were often given lavish inducements to move from, let's say, Radio 1 to Radio 5 Live. And once you've been given that big money, it's in the nature of that kind of work that you, you never, it never goes down. Um, so somebody like Steve Wright, it might have been worth what he was being paid 20 years ago, but every year it's just gone up. And that's the way that, you know, corporate salaries go. And he, his show hasn't got any better. Well, it literally hasn't changed. It, has it literally hasn't changed. His figures haven't gone. Nothing's changed except his salaries kept going up. And I, I, But I do agree with you. I think it's a very bad place for the BBC to find itself. But also, Toby, 
I suppose the flip side of what I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with getting a big salary if you're Chris Evans in terms of on-air talent. Like If you're getting paid 150 quid to do a three-hour show, the whole point is you should be aspiring to be Chris Evans. You only become Chris Evans after putting in a lot of graft and a lot of persistence and building up a lot of talent. And again, that story is getting perverted somewhat as well because the British attitude is, look at these guys and what they're getting paid. I understand what you're saying, but I think like the list of what I've seen, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of BBC. I don't watch a lot of BBC, if I'm completely honest. Um, that might have to do with the fact that I don't own a telly at the moment. Uh, do, you, do you pay a licence then? No, we don't. We don't have a TV. I just decided that there's not much for me to pay for in terms of content that speaks to me um netflix has a greater variety so why not pay for that on that bombshell i'm gonna move on <laughs> I think. Um, uh, let's talk about facebook then more of your home turf uh, they all have to pay five hundred thousand pounds for their role in the cambridge analytica data mm. breach after the information commissioner's office said facebook have not done enough to make sure user data was deleted this is a farce of a fine isn't it toby 500 grand i know it's the most they could impose but i mean for facebook it is absolutely bugger all they uh, i think they earned 12 billion or like 13 billion last year it's a slap on the wrist like it doesn't make a difference i think the only good thing though is that they've imposed the maximum fine so it shows that this body is really willing to come down as hard as possible i think i heard that there's a possibility that fine could be upped later on in the year i don't know how much it will be too but I think the problem is how do you really find or how do you make impact on a company like Facebook that's earning that sort of money um, well I'd say the answer is reputational damage and that seems to be what they've really taken to heart I mean I don't yeah. know if you were watching the England final last night as we record um, the England final the semi-final, semifinal of the World Cup England's last hurrah uh, <laughs> in the ad break for that match noticeably there was a big Facebook trust us ad that's yeah. the most expensive ad you can buy on British TV isn't it yeah. you know in the World Cup when England are playing it obviously matters to Facebook yeah I think that I think a lot of people are kind of wary about using Facebook now and like other platforms seem I don't no platform's completely safe do you know what I mean you have to give up some sort of information um but yeah you're right maybe it's reputational damage um but I do think money does play a part though I think those big fines do put off companies doing such things um smaller companies maybe yeah 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 but it's tricky isn't it Trevor if you're setting up a new I mean not that you could set up a new social network now really to rival Facebook but if you're setting up a new a new platform a new snap type enterprise um you're going to think harder about your data laws right from the beginning, aren't you, and your terms and conditions? Well, I think you would, but, you know, it's such a big thing to control. When I saw Zuckerberg appearing in the, uh, those hearings, you know, where he was being asked by politicians how his business worked, I thought, do you know what? You don't know. It's now so big, he can't control it. It is mm. completely now out of control. And I, I, I think slapping a fine of... 500 grand or 500 million is just I'm not sure it could be that there are people who are now 10 years old for whom Facebook will be like MySpace you know Mm. that there'll just be something else that'll come along and Facebook will just be so old-fashioned and something that your mum and dad use maybe that will happen I don't know my mother-in-law loves Facebook I don't think it puts her off though I think if you're used to Facebook, I don't think it will put you off. And I think people my age, around like their 20s, I think we use more social platforms. So for me, it's kind of like, uh, there's something else I can use. Um, Facebook's kind of growing old on me anyways. It lacks that Im- immediate impact, I think, Facebook, compared to things like Instagram stories and Snapchat. You are talking to 
politically switched on people who want to be more aware about the world around mm. them to the extent that they're choosing the own, their own media yeah. and they don't want to have it filtered through a third party, doesn't it worry them when they realise that during an election the coverage they're seeing in the news is being targeted at them based on a product they've bought or a TV programme they say they like? Of course, of course it, of course it does. Um, but but my- not enough to make them change their ways. What, stop using Facebook altogether? I mean, I can't remember. I think the last time I went on Facebook, I, I tell you why, my friend said, I've uploaded some wedding pictures of yours. Can you, Are you happy with them? Like, I had to be told to go on Facebook. Okay, but you say you go on Instagram that's owned by Facebook, so same uh, yeah, deal, right? Uh, yeah. there's, no, there's no ethical divide because, saying, right, we're leaving you, Zuckerberg. Yeah, because he, own, he owns so much. I mean, even WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, and it's something that I used on my commute. Um, and again, I think you just don't think that because it's not Facebook, you don't think, oh my God, they own Instagram, they own WhatsApp, I'm going to stop using that. Um, but I do think some people are moving away from Facebook. I don't think it's going to, you know, stop people using Facebook and it's going to all collapse. I just don't think that's going to happen. We all know that's not going to happen. Okay, finally, some real clickbait. It is time for our media podcast quiz. Claxon. Okay. <laughs> this week, we play People and Places. You can pretend there's a blue pie if you like. I'm going to tell you a story and you're going to tell me where it took place. We want to know the location, location, location. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Toby, you will say... Toby. And Trevor, you will say... Trevor. Fastest voice box first. <laughs> Toby gave me such a great look when she said that. <laughs> uh, let's go with question one. Where did the HuffPo take their newsroom Trevor. to? Toby. Trevor. Birmingham, England. They did, yeah. Was that a reference to Jeremy Hunt again? <laughs> As opposed to Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Indeed so. <laughs> uh, the HuffPo did indeed take their newsroom to Birmingham, England as part of their Listens programme to find underrepresented voices. Their HuffPo Listens drop-in session at Birmingham's Ball Ring also resulted in stories about local LGBT plus campaigns, community cohesion and oppositional defiance disorder. I don't know either, but that's the point. Clickbait. Here is question number two. Where has one of the latest hyper-local newspapers to- had success, Toby? Uh, the Gloucestershire Villages. Um, it's the Wotton Times. Yeah, that is very skillful work, yes. Oh. Uh, the full question was, where has one of the latest hyper-local newspapers had success reporting on newt populations? Did you did you click on the story about newt populations, Toby? <laughs> I didn't click on that. It didn't quite... catching shocking news. Tickle my fancy, but... Uh, yeah, the Wooden Times has a printed monthly circulation of 4,000, which people are paying for, Trevor. So which is, which is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, very no, uh, absolutely. And, and let's bring back local papers, Molly. And the tie break. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay. The media quiz is coming home. Where has Christian O'Connell... Toby. Oh, that's almost too hard to call. I'll give it to Toby. That's very gracious of you. I mean, it's still all to play for. Toby could be wrong. The full question, where has Christian O'Connell helped Gold FM remain the number one station? Melbourne. The answer is Melbourne, Australia. Yes, Christian O'Connell achieved a 0.7 ratings point boost in his first two months on air, taking him to an 8.7% share. Uh, Trevor, do you see any other UK radio presenters following suit and decamping to us? I could think of some I'd like to send over there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All of which means, Toby, you are the winner. Trevor. Congratulations. Congratulations to you, Trevor, for being (laughs) such a gracious contestant. Uh, That is it for today. Thank you to Trevor Dan and Toby Oridin. Uh, Today's episode is dedicated to Millie Lenehan, one of the subscribers who, with just a small donation, keeps this podcast going. Thank you, Millie. You can get an episode of The Media Podcast dedicated to anyone you like by visiting themediapodcast.com slash donate and choosing a voluntary subscription. 
that suits you. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. We will be back for the Edinburgh TV Festival in August. Until then. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.